Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. We continue along in our new sermon series with today's pillar being humility. So growing up, my family always liked to say everything in moderation. I think there's great wisdom in this saying, and it's especially important in the topic of humility. It is a trait that we value in our society, but I've seen humility become something like self-deprecation or self-loathing. Specifically, I've seen this in myself in the past. Just like how we can be too confident, I think we can become, quote-unquote, too humble, even if we can call something like that true humility. But I don't think something like confidence or pride are exact opposites of humility. I think all those those kind of work in conjunction with one another and with the right levels of each produce something really healthy. And this healthy dynamic can contribute to us in choosing joy. So that's my take on the idea of humility. Uh, but Pastor Ben will start along these lines, but then he'll dive more into some of the attributes of humility. So with that, enjoy. Remind you of those questions I asked at the beginning of service. How does humility impact our joy? How does humility influence our ability to see joy flourish in our lives? I've I've found over my my life that joy, happiness can be contingent on circumstances, right? But joy seems to be more of of a decision where we wake up every day and choose joy. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's difficult. <laughs> Some days it's easy to choose joy. Other days it's much more difficult. So we're looking at how these pillars influence that ability to maintain and allow joy to flourish. And today we're looking at humility. And there's a, as I was preparing the sermon for this Sunday, there's really a paradox for anyone who's going to talk about humility in public. Does this person really think he's an expert on humility? If he does think he's an expert, he's most certainly not an expert on humility, right? And if they're not an expert on humility, why are you listening to them, right? I don't know how to resolve this paradox of talking about humility in public, But I'm thankful that we're here to not look at anyone else as an example of humility, but Christ, right? So we're going to look at Christ as the example of humility and really think together. Because again, uh, this Sunday, probably more than most, it's important to remind you that I'm not here to tell you what to think or how to think. I'm here to think with you. We look at scriptures and look at the example that Christ gives us so that we can discern wisely together how to move forward as the church. So we're going to look at this pillar of humility, and right out the gate, I want to remind us, humility is not humiliation or shame, right? We can get into a really destructive 
mindset when we think that humility is humiliation or shame when it comes to ourselves or the way that we treat others. Humility is not humiliation or shame. It doesn't mean allowing yourself to be walked on or your boundaries to be violated. Humility is something far different than shame or humiliation. And as I was looking for uh, really good definitions of humility, I I came across this one that I I just really, really like. Um, This definition of humility is to hold power in service of others. So I I found a picture of of a boxer, and his his muscles were a little bit bigger than mine. And he was, had boxing gloves on and fully decked out and was holding a little tiny kitten. And it said, humility, holding power in service of others. And my mind went to that scripture passage, and we just did four weeks on the book of Revelation. I think of when John heard the roaring of a what? But then he turned and saw what? A lamb, right? Holding power in service of others. This cosmic God who could call down legions of angels at any moment and just obliterate any enemies, anything that stands in his way. And yet he comes as this slaughtered lamb. What kind of a God is that, right? So that's really this contrast of humility, holding power in service of others. Humility is the choice to forego status and use any power and influence for the good of others before ourselves. Now, if you've known me for a while, you'll know my favorite passage of Scripture, and I'm sure when you knew that humility was coming, you're like, all right, We're going to hear Ben talk about Philippians 2 again. It's his favorite passage, but we are. We're going to look at Philippians 2. So I didn't want to disappoint you today. So we're going to look at Philippians 2. You heard that uh, quoted at the beginning of service, but let's let's look at this again and just ponder just the immensity of what Paul is communicating here. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's look at this together. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And what I always remind myself as we're reading this, the, probably the best way to interpret this is with a southern accent because it's not just you individual. G- uh, Paul is talking to his church. So y'all have the mindset who is in Christ Jesus, right? All y'all working together to put the needs of each other above 
your own. And can you imagine if the whole world worked that way? Each person putting the needs of the other, especially those who have deep grave need, putting their interests above our own. I can't imagine a world like that. I want to live in a world like that, amen? (laughs) I want to live in a place where every person is putting their needs, the needs of others above their own. But what really just leaves me so floored about this passage every single time I read it, and I think that's why I keep coming back to it, is the radical nature of what is being described here about God. A cosmic, infinite God becoming a finite human being. As I pointed out in my sermon last Sunday, there are, there's a version of the gospel that sees Jesus only as God's son who was given as a sacrifice for the world in order to to satisfy God's wrath towards the world. Yet when we hold to the more ancient, more historical version of the gospel, the, the version that the early church would have understood, which sees Jesus not as just the Son of God or just the person, the sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath, but as the very revelation of God in the world himself the very incarnation of God in the flesh and blood, scriptures like this one become so groundbreaking. It was the early church in the year 300 that gave us the phrase, Jesus, fully human, fully God. That's in the Constantinopolian Creed. Butchered that. Go look up that pronunciation yourself later on. Okay, homework. But they, they wrote a whole creed on the nature of Jesus being one with God. So when we look at this passage through that lens, it brings a radical reality. It makes the claim, Philippians 2, that a cosmic infinite God who has never experienced a limitation of any kind becomes a finite human being, just like us. For the first time in God's infinite existence, God experienced being born, aging, hungering, thirsting, experienced pain, uncertainty, and even death. That's a radical claim for a cosmic God. For the first time, this God experienced not knowing fully what the future would hold or play out. Sound like anyone else you know? For the first time, this God experienced what it was like being confined to one single point in history, just like we are. We are not omniscient, unless one of you has a secret you would like to tell me. None of us are omnipresent. We can't be everywhere or know everything at once. Honestly, that sounds really stressful. To be everywhere at once and know everything, it would drive me crazy, I think to know it all. But God became human in this way, giving so much of those things up to become one of us. The incarnation is an all-powerful God becoming a servant to share power with us all. (laughs) Radical. Humility is holding power in service to others. 
It is a choice to forego status and use any power and influence for the good of others before ourselves. I think we see that so clearly described in Jesus in Philippians 2. The incarnation is the furthest that God went to be with us. Never before in scriptures did God become a human being. So this is a, this is a radical, radical claim. God would go even further still all the way to death for us. But you know, as I'm reflecting on the scriptures, God continued to try to get down low and be with us from the beginning. This is not something different that God, out of God's character. We see from the beginning that God came down and walked in the garden every morning with humanity. We see that God came down and made a covenant with Abraham, even taking the submissive role in that covenant. We see God coming down and giving the Ten Commandments to Israel to reconcile the people back to God. We see God coming and living within a tabernacle, living in the temple, then becoming a human being. God has always been trying to come down and meet us on our level. It really does remind me, this nature of God reminds me of what Jesus says to his uh, disciples in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus called his disciples together and said, you know how that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? <laughs> and their high officials exercise authority, and that Greek word for authority is coercive power, over them? And then he says this radical line, not so with you, this is not the way it's supposed to be with my disciples. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be what? Your servant. You see, Jesus is not just describing how disciples of Jesus are supposed to live, but Jesus is revealing the nature of God here too. God has always tried to come down and be the servant among humanity, and that's what God's followers are supposed to look like too. This has always made me think, as I was writing my sermon today, I thought about this again. Why are, I was, didn't just write this today. That was a mistake. As I was writing my sermon this week, I always think, why are we always looking up for God as if God is some high, lofty, far-off, unreachable God. We should be looking down here with us, among us. After all, Jesus, another name for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. So wherever people are being cared for, dignified, their interests are being put above others, being valued, their God is being revealed by Christ Jesus. God is with us. But sometimes I don't think we recognize God because we're looking for the definition of greatness that the world gives us rather than the definition of greatness that we just read about in Philippians 2. I deeply believe that humility is one of, if not the fundamental reasons, one of the fundamental reasons that we still talk about Jesus today. How this cosmic God took all power and glory, redefining greatness, lowering himself and becoming a servant for the world. The very God that made the world 
becoming a servant to the world. Gosh, that redefines greatness for me. When all other emperors and kings walk around rattling their sabers and strut their lethal power over others, there is this God who is revealed in Christ, who used power for and with others, not over and coercive power, but shared and poured out power for others. Such a radical difference. So then we get to our question, how is this connected to joy? How does humility foster and maintain our joy? Well, I wanted to share just a few to end the sermon today with just a few trademarks of humility. And I want to leave it up to you as to how you think these trademarks can help foster joy in our own lives and in our lives together. John Dixon uh, says that humility, its trademarks, uh, looks this way. Common sense is a trademark of humility. Humility is beautiful. Humility is generative. Humility is persuasive. And humility is inspiring. So let's just spend a few seconds looking at each one of these. First, humility is common sense. How? It helps us to see ourselves as we are. When we think far too much of ourselves, we overestimate our abilities. When we think too low, which is humiliation and shame, we underestimate our abilities and our value and our gifts, right? So humility is a sober judgment. It takes into consideration the common sense, the gifts, the graces that you have been given, but it doesn't think of those things too much. It doesn't overdo it and start to inflate your ego <laughs> that brings about destructive patterns in your lives and in the relationships with others. But it doesn't overestimate into shame either, right? Humility is sober judgment, and it helps us to keep common sense. I like to think of it this way, that humility is common sense because it helps us to remember that what we know now doesn't even compare to what we don't know, <laughs> right? What we don't know far exceeds what we know now, right? And keeping that at the center of our conversations as Christians, it, it helps us to say, you know what? The pursuit, we're never not done learning. We are constantly growing, constantly pursuing wisdom and understanding. And you know who are great sources of understanding? the people sitting right next to you. <laughs> in our conversations, we can, when we don't have an inflated sense, when we have sober judgment of who we are, when we know that there's so much we don't know, because arrogance is really thinking, you know everything and there's no, nothing left to learn, right? But when we, when we have common sense and we're aware, we don't know it all. We actually start to see joy flourish among us because we're actually working together for this common purpose to, of, for understanding. So humility is common sense. And humility is beautiful. Humility is beautiful. There's, here's a simple psychological reality. We are more attracted to the great who are humble than the great who know they're great and wants everyone to know it. Who are we more attracted to, right? The great who are humble rather than the great who know they're great, right? Right? 
Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, has anyone heard that name before? Sir Edmund Hillary. He was one of the first who conquered Mount Everest. And he's, he, he's passed away now, but he, was, he became so famous and wealthy because of his ability to climb, and he conquered Mount Everest. Well, he's also an incredibly humble person. He went back to Nepal to give back to the people who had given so much to him. So he built orphanages and hospitals and nonprofits in Nepal. He was always going back to the Himalayas and to Nepal to give back to those people. Well, one time he was there and a group of climbers recognized him. There were tourists there getting ready to go into the Himalayas and they spotted him and they wanted a group photo with him. And so he always being obliging, he got in the middle of their group and they went to take this picture and they gave him an ice pick because he had to look the part, right? I mean, he's this famous climber. He's got to be holding an ice pick. So they gave him an ice pick and he starts to pose for this picture. Well, just before they took the picture, this tourist climber came around the corner, not recognizing who he was, the person who had conquered Mount Everest. This climber walks up to him and like, sir, you're not holding that ice pick appropriately and fixed it. To everyone's amazement in that group, Sir Edmund Hillary just looked at the man and said, oh, thank you, and went on with the photo. And the climber, the tourist, kept going, right? Now, I don't care how great that climber was. I don't even know their name, so they must not be that. No, I'm just kidding. I don't care how great that climber was. His presumption, his arrogance diminished his greatness, but Sir Edmund Hillary, what do we think of him in that moment who didn't use that? He could have been snarky. He could have been snide. He could have told him who he was. He could have had everyone else around him like go on and on about his greatness. He just said, thank you, because that wasn't something that was important. His relationship with the people around him was what was important. So his humility actually built up his greatness, right? Humility is beautiful because it doesn't make it about itself. It's always mindful of the people around. Humility is beautiful. Humility is generative. And when I first heard this, I was like, huh? What, what does that mean? It, it's generative because humility generates new understanding and insight. Again, when we have sober judgment of ourselves, we are able to understand that there's so much that we don't know, and so we're pursuing understanding constantly. And it believes that we have so much left to understand. And the humble person always believes that there's something more they can learn from anyone, anyone. And I think this is why I admire the scientific method so much. Because as a, if, if you're truly a scientist, you can't just claim that your opinion about the world is true, period, done. I have it all figured out about the world, that's it. There's, there's nothing else to, to understand. You actually have to make a hypothesis and test your findings. And then you have to invite others to scrutinize those results, Right? It is a constant effort in humility, and it's a vulnerable process. I do that with my sermons as well. I will not only do people downtown, we read each other's sermons before Sunday, but I'll send that to a group of colleagues and like, all right, have at it. And it's every week it's a vulnerable thing because like you're writing these things and no one sees it but you, right? 
you can write down anything you want. And then you have like four or five sets of eyes scrutinizing the things that you say. Ugh, <laughs> it's a vulnerable process, right? But this is the work of humility. I think if we got more used to this effort of saying, it's not about just my opinions about the world, because we really are in this together, amen? <laughs> And so this generative characteristic or trademark of humility, we are looking to generate insight and understanding. And we can only do that if we come from a place of humility. The low place generates flourishing understanding and insight. And humility is persuasive. Over 2,000 years ago, this a guy named Aristotle, don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, In his book called On Rhetoric, he wrote this about persuasion. Powerful quote. We believe good-hearted people to a greater extent and more quickly than we do others on all subjects in general, and completely so in cases where there is not exact knowledge but room for doubt. Character is almost, so to speak, the controlling factor in persuasion. Isn't that fascinating? The guy who literally wrote the book on persuasion, the first book on rhetoric, talks about we will believe a good-hearted person even when there's doubt left because their character is persuasive. Um, a really good example of this, if you're a nerd like me, you look up the history of things like, when did hand washing start in the medical community? Anyone done that recently? <laughs> One of the cr- crazy things about that story is the person who wanted to introduce hand washing because of infant mortality. He was an OBGYN and wanted to stop infants from dying. And there was a time, my friends, Remember this, like how grateful we are for washing our hands. It was not common practice in the medical community. They would go from one birth to the next without doing anything in between. This led to both women and babies passing away at alarming rates. So the person who tested, quantified, hypothesis, scrutinized, showed that hand washing works, but he was arrogant. And because he went and shamed his colleagues, told his colleagues how stupid they were for not washing their hands, the medical community literally refused to introduce hand washing until he died. That's a really good advice precedent to set, right? But if your character comes into play and it's prideful and arrogant, you're going to start to just turn people off. It doesn't matter what good news you have to offer. For us Christians who claim to have good news to offer, it's really important that our character also line up with the person of Christ that we're trying to advocate for, right? Because it doesn't matter how good the good news we have. If our character is opposite of that, it will turn people off to that message so quickly. So, Humility is persuasive because it's still other-centered, right? You are putting the needs of the other person you're talking to first. Why are humble people more persuasive? Because when great people are cold and aloof, we may admire them from afar, but we don't think that we can be like them. 
They are unreachable, and so their greatness seems unattainable. Yet when someone is other person-centered, when they are humble and approachable, they become just like us, and so we think that we can be just like them too, that no greatness is out of reach. Honestly, no greatness is out of reach for anyone, but there are some people who live their lives as if their greatness is unattainable. It's only for them. But true greatness shares greatness with others. And that's why it can be so persuasive. This is essentially Paul's entire perspective of Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself and became just like you. So humble yourselves as well and become just like him. Right? Our relationship with God looks like Christ's relationship with God. Our relationship with each other looks like Christ's relationship with each other. And the way of doing that is humility. And lastly, this is connected to why humility is inspiring. When greatness lowers itself, humbles itself, because just like us, not only do we find such greatness persuasive, but we are deeply inspired that we could be that persuasive, that beautiful as well, that insightful. We are inspired that we can actually emulate that kind of greatness. And I think for me, at least, when I go through these trademarks, it's easy to see how joy can flourish in the way of humility. How can joy not flourish in beauty, in insight, in understanding, in persuasiveness, and in generating new and deeper understanding of the world around us? If what we Christians claim is true, and I believe it is, that the cross is at the center of all history, that is the greatest revelation of God in the world, the self-giving of the Almighty, then humility is and will always be the center of our reality as Christians when we look to be in the example of Christ. I think that's why it is a fundamental part to joy flourishing among us. I want to give you just a few action steps uh, this week to ponder humility. Um, who do you consider great and why? <laughs> because we really will start, start to emulate those that we admire, right? So who do you consider great? Who do you admire and why? And really discern as you're asking this question, where do you see these trademarks of humility in them? Is that why you admire them? Is because their greatness is defined by humility. Next, uh, how does humility influence the way that you see God? For a long, 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 long time, I really did see God as this far off, unapproachable, like I needed to be terrified to be in God's presence, right? Where how I'm really wrestling with that now is that the God that I see in Jesus Christ isn't this foreboding, wrathful, vengeful God, but a God who lowers himself to be a servant among us. And that really... Honestly, it was more inspiring to me to want to emulate the God that I see in Christ, right? And so humility has just dramatically changed the way that I see God. So I want you to ask that question of yourselves as well. How does humility influence the way that you see God? Um, and lastly, how does humility influence your joy? You know, I, I've found that the points in my life when I am overly arrogant or my ego takes over, 
Um, joy is the furthest thing from my mind. You know, I think a really good example of that is like when you get into petty arguments on Facebook. I'm sure no one has ever done that in this room. None of us are guilty of that at all. But at the end of those arguments, are you ever like, oh, I'm so joyful? <laughs> you may have won. You may have won the day, right? I am exhausted at the end of it. And I may have just irreparably damaged the, the relationship with that person and everyone else who was watching. There's a quote attributed to Mark Twain that says, never argue with a fool in public because onlookers may not be able to tell the difference between you. That's such a great encapsulation of social media. But like those moments where you're like, I have to win. It's never brought joy. When you want to be right more than anything else, it's one of the most joyless existences, I think. One of the questions that will stick with me until, until the end of my life is, what do you want more than to be right? I want to be loving. I want to be loving more than I want to be right. And it's so, so crucial in those moments where being right seems like the most important thing. <laughs> but there is truth in love. <laughs> And truth and love doesn't always mean being right and getting your way. So again, discern what joy, how humility influences your joy, because I think you'll find more joy and humility than you will find Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.